So welcome to one of the most irregular podcast series in the world, uh, which I think we should actually be calling uh, Random Hotels of the Western World. Uh, so uh, I'm here, I'm Simon Ashwood, uh, I'm joined by Amanda Rosen, so uh, this is another uh, discussion uh, impromptu uh, off the back of us both being here in Brighton in the UK uh, by the sea, we can see the sea from uh, where we're sitting. Uh, at the International Learn no, Teaching and Learning Conference. The 20th. Joint International Teaching and Learning Conference, which is a joint venture between the American Political Science Association, the Political Studies Association, the British ISA, and ECPR. And is the first time all four associations have collaborated in this way. Yeah, so cool. it's really cool. So it's a bit the same uh, ideas as uh, the APSA TLC, mm -hmm. uh, Euro TLC, Actually, lots of different TLCs yeah. of different kinds, <laughs> but again, different combination of people. And it's been really nice, actually, for me to see some people I know, such right. as you, but also some people I don't know. Uh, it's a good mix. Yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of a mix. Uh, different kinds of formats, panels, workshops, roundtables, round short talks. We tried, I'm on the planning committee, and we, we tried to encourage really innovative formats. Um, but at the same time, wanted to make space for traditional formats as well. Um, so so it's, it's a nice mix of different uh, different types of presentations. Um, and you can tell that we're actually enjoying the conference because we are sitting inside the hotel and looking out at the beach instead of wandering the beach. I think we should be out. I, I'm, I'm debating whether to do my, my roundtable discussion on the beach since it is literally a stone's throw uh, from here and the rain hasn't yet come in off uh, the sea. But it's maybe only a matter of time. Cool. We, we were wondering what is useful to, to talk about. And actually, one of the things we, we've been talking about is the things we always end up talking about at these kind of <laughs> events, which is that uh, there's always a degree of frustration that we're still talking about the same things, that uh, we keep kind of not quite reinventing the wheel, but in some cases reinventing the wheel, that uh, people's awareness of what there is out there uh, things that matter, the elements that are important, the, the effects of different kinds of approaches, people just keep discovering again and again. Yeah, we, we've, I mean, we've been talking about this for 10 years, but we don't really have systems for sharing resources that are universal. And I've noticed it more at this conference even than at other conferences, because you know, normally when I'm at, say, TLC in the States, most of the people there are American. So we're talking about, so, oh, well, APSA should be providing these resources. But then I come over here and I realize that people um, based in the UK, based in uh, different parts of Europe, don't necessarily read the American literature. And we certainly don't tend to read the European literature. So you have things that seem like new discussions discoveries in one set of journals that's actually been something that's been talked about for five or ten years in another journal. Um, and so that may, so maybe journals aren't the best place to start, but we just don't have these systematic processes for sharing information. We tried to do that with Active Learning and Political Science, the blog, um, and I think we've had some success there, but even there, in terms of systematic sharing of ideas, having a common literature even, that we all read, the way we do in our PhDs, the way we do in our research, it just still doesn't exist. And I'm not entirely sure what the best format is to create that. Well, it's interesting because I was, I was doing a talk at a, a university in London last week uh, and the, the woman who had invited me had used to work for the UK's Higher Education Authority, mm. uh, Academy rather, the HEA, 
uh, and she had been uh, responsible for inviting me to do some material. So I wrote a pack of how to do simulations and active learning for new teachers. Uh, and I did that and I still it's really hard to find on the website uh, if it's still there. Uh, but yeah, all the things I was talking about that group of people who were interested in doing simulations were still the same things I was writing about a decade ago or more. Uh, and again, you know, even when we do produce materials, people's awareness of them, let alone whether they actually use them, remains relatively low. And right. I think, yeah, that, that, there is that problem, you know, that I think it's not that we haven't had efforts to try and do it. Uh, you know, we, I bumped into a colleague yesterday uh, who had, with some uh, colleagues at his university, had set up a, a wiki page, you know, with some OERs of sims and, you know, you know, basically packages to download and, and use and yeah that never really took off and I think it was a bit embarrassed at the, the, the quality of what there was and people are taking stuff off so yeah e even when we do do it it's not simply just you know we should do more right it's it, when people have done more that hasn't necessarily closed the gap Right. It's like there needs to be a central canon of, I don't even know that it's certain articles that need to be read because in, certainly in the cases of simulations, there's no sort of definitive single article that you can read that can give you a broader sense of how to do this, um, you know, depending on what kind of skills you're trying to teach or what kind of content you're trying to teach, you need something different. Um, so there isn't the set canon uh, and I can't seem to figure out how to solve this problem of getting these resources into the hands of people who need them. You know, there was, uh, in one of the sessions, someone said, well, I've just been assigned this new uh, course to teach. Uh, I am just going to start it in the fall, and I would like to do something other than just lecture. What can I do? And, you know, I, I wish that that person had already known, oh, well, there's actually all of these simulations out there, some of which might work very well for that particular course um, but it's it's like we're not even trained to know that and part of that has to go back to our PhD training where teaching is not for many of us a fundamental part of that training so we're not given these resources we're not told how to seek out of it we may not even realize that there is a literature on teaching politics yeah but uh, you know I know for my students when they go and get their, their teacher training element a lot of that is basic sort of classroom management kind right. of thing so you know, the priority is, you know, the thing that they're almost certainly doing is leading some seminar discussions. So, okay, how do you do that? And, it, you know, in this scheme of things, getting people to think about the vast variety of what teaching can involve and learning can involve, the different kinds of environments, I think, you know, there's never enough space. And that's even before you get the the resistance of colleagues. Right. Uh, you know, why do I have to go and do training on teaching I'm fine with what I do and I don't have the time and what's the point and what's the benefit and yeah so that there are a whole series of ba uh, barriers and for me one of the things that was very interesting was that I was asked if I would chair a panel and I ended up chairing a, a panel about decolonizing the curriculum uh, which was interesting in its own right because very different things but actually a lot of the things come over into active learning and, and simulations which is how do you encourage people to change practice how do you get beyond the core of people who are motivated passionate about the issue who think that it's important that it has real value for, to right. change the, the discipline uh, 
how do you get buy-in from everyone else? Uh, and I know we've always kind of encountered that resistance. And right. just at the last panel we were at, somebody as I was leaving had said, that, you know, he's been told by his university to cut out all of this kind of fancy stuff and just do simple lectures and seminars and I think it was the phrase he was told that you know oh you're a good teacher whatever you do they'll like it so just do the thing that's least effort uh, and least demanding in terms of of time. And this ties into larger trends in higher education at least in the United States uh, in terms of the adjunctification of the faculty right where teaching and having faculty that can put the kind of effort and time into or not that they can put into it uh, but more that um, they are paid well and given benefits so that they could devote that kind of time to developing more innovative methods of teaching. Um, and that through taking away tenure track lines in the faculty and paying people per course, uh, you know, if you're trying to put together a livelihood by getting a course from this university, a course from that university, just to make a living, um, there are still many adjuncts out there who really are incredibly dedicated teachers who want to use. Um, to try out these kinds of methods, but they're definitely not rewarded necessarily for doing so, except potentially in the sense that uh, if it gets their teaching evaluations up, they're more likely to be invited back. Um, But they're not rewarded for it in the terms of a tenure track contract. And then those who have tenure track contracts, of course, for the most part, uh, get promotion and tenure based on their research agenda. So they're certainly not incentivized to bring these sorts of methods in. So it's almost like we're all incentivized to go for the lowest hanging fruit. What can you do that can get you good enough reviews that aren't isn't going to take up as much of your time? And a lot of simulations and games don't necessarily have to take up a lot of time, but that's certainly the reputation. Yeah, uh, I think it's actually not unjustified as a reputation, and I often am telling people who haven't got into it, you know, it, it can be really great, but you've got to work for it, and yeah. you've got to keep working for it. And it's not even just the setup costs, it's also the ongoing management costs yeah. of it, you know, that it's not, you can't just put your feet up at the end and say, oh, fine, well, there you are, read the, the, the little introductory thing and then off you go and tell me how it all goes at the end. It's, right. it's actually about being very much involved in the, the classroom and precisely because it's not focused on you, you have to be much more engaged in what is happening with those who it is focused on, the students. Right. And so, uh, yeah, you know, there's kind of, I think people see it as a zero sum, you know, if I'm doing less of my normal thing the lecturing that therefore they must be doing more and so that's it and it's just I've pushed it off my table into right and then there's this sort of assumption that learning is happening without I mean in many of our teaching we sort of assume that learning is happening without assessing it right but at least when when you're doing a simulation like that debrief is so important at the end to really see what the students have taken away and help them build those connections back to the material and, and back to the real world and see what the differences are between how the simulation played out and how that might have played out um, in other contexts. Uh, so I mean, there's, I mean, simula- we both obviously love simulations and games, but you're right in terms of it is not the easiest thing to just go out and do. And if you don't have support from your institution uh, to do those things, um, or if it's going to take up a lot of your time that perhaps should be devoted to other things, I certainly understand the pressure to go another route. Yeah. Um, but it's. But that's yeah. it. But you know, so somebody was presenting today about their simulation, you know, making it as realistic as possible, the pseudo reality. Right. You know, how how accurately can you capture all of the different dimensions that might shape and inform a political decision? And you know, you rightly made the point that actually abstraction 
lack of realism is also valuable because it helps focus attention on the key things that you're trying to, to do. But you know, for me, the, the thing with simulations is it's not about trying to recreate the world. It's just actually, even in something very simple, there is so much richness. And you know, the, particularly on that debrief element, you know, students pull out stuff again and again that I just I can't see because I'm not in right. the activity. And, but just also, as a way into their thinking, their minds, I think it's so powerful, as you said. Uh, if you don't have a debrief, it's not a simulation. It's right. just a thing we did. wasn't that fun. It's like uh, end of term. You know, yeah. uh, you can bring in games, board games, and you know we'll just have fun lessons, uh, and then you can go away and have holidays. Yeah, I mean, a simulation without a debrief in my mind is not a simulation. It's it is. It's just fun, um, and that you know. So it, I hear this a lot at conferences where people, you know, say, oh, you know, and the debrief is important and, 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 and that's an important message to put out, but the debrief is essential. Uh, and whenever I hear about, you know, games or simulations that are being done without that debrief, and the debrief doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be a paper, doesn't have to be a hour long discussion at the end. Um, sometimes with some games, it's five, 10 minutes. Uh, but it's some point where you allow the students to make those connections and you help them make those connections. And if that doesn't happen, then you can't just assume that those connections occur. In their mind, they're like, oh, that was fun. Um, and in terms of simulations, I mean, I don't, no simulation is going to completely capture reality. Even if students say, oh, I think that was really, much, you know, really captured reality, that's not true. They're not actually in those positions. Lives don't depend on the decisions that they actually made. They understand that. Uh, and so it's not ever going to be completely real. Nice. So you have to then figure out, okay, well, what do, it's all about the learning outcomes. What do you want your students to get out of this simulation? Why are you doing it? Uh, and you know, maybe if you are just doing it for a bit of fun, <laughs> then uh, you, know, you can not have a debrief or anything. I don't think that's probably the best use of student time. Um, but sometimes maybe that's what you need to jumpstart something else. But if you're doing a simulation, you have to figure out, is your main goal that they learn all of the nuance of that historical situation that you're putting them in? Is it that you want them to really work on their negotiation skills? Uh, what is it that you're trying to do? And that's going to impact the structure of the game that you actually choose. But you shouldn't just pick a game and then make that work for your class, right? You should figure out what are you trying to accomplish and then find the tool that's going to help you accomplish that. Yeah, although I know I've picked up games that other people have made and I've defined the learning objectives you as can, ones that work yeah. for, for me. But, but you can do it out of order, yeah. right? You can find something cool and then figure out how that's going to work for you. Yeah. But you have to figure out what you're going to emphasize from that game or simulation that works for your class. You can't just assume that you can just pick something up and put it in your class and it's going to achieve things if you haven't thought about what those things are. Yeah, and that's it, you know, and I think I've talked about this before, but, you know, I, for my, my course on negotiation, you know, my assessment is essentially an essay where they say what they've learned. Right. And, just whatever it is they've learned, that's what they've learned. And I'm fine with that because yeah. you have that multiplicity of interests, reflections, ideas, and that can be really academic, but also it can be really prosaic and boring. And, you know, I had a student who wrote an excellent 4,000 word essay about the importance of looking at people when you talk at them. And, you know, mm. from that one banal point, uh, yeah, he, he constructed something really impressive because it was centered in his understanding and you know he was able to articulate that yeah and, uh, yeah it's about drawing people out of themselves but also you know you do that in the debrief you know it's saying well okay what you think is what you think and that's fine and that's valid right uh, in terms of putting students 
front and center, I think that that is really important. No, I think it's crucial, right? Uh, In that you should not assume that what you want your students to learn are what they're going to learn, right? I can have my learning objectives and this is what I want them to learn, but making that space for them to learn the things that they're going to take from it is really important. We've seen that in the workshops that we've done where uh, we'll play a game and we're doing a workshop tomorrow. Um, We'll play a game and then we'll ask people, what is this game illustrating? We don't tell them ahead of time. And sometimes the things that they come up with, what they see in that game, is not anything that was necessarily intended by the person who created the game. So we often do, for example, the Hobbes game that Victor Assal developed. And I love that part of the debrief of the game where we don't tell them it's the Hobbes game. We don't call it that. We call it the survive or die game or the classic. We don't even usually call it the classical realism game when we're introducing it. And uh, people play it, and then we ask them what the game is about. And some of them will say, oh, this is Hobbes, and others will come up with totally different things. And I love that, because it lets people take a tool and adapt it for their purposes, which is, and it shows that diversity of learning that can occur in our students. And maybe this, you know, let's come back then to that, that, that starting problem of, you know, why don't we all know all the stuff we should know or could know about what's already out there? And part of it, I think, is that there is that multiplicity of what we're using these things for and you know just trying to impose a sort of a a new you know create a canon and say this is the canon and that's it is it empowering but it's also Mm. disempowering because you say okay this is this is how you do simulations and again that you know that that barrier between what's a simulation and what's a game and what's an activity and what's a negotiation you know we kind of we didn't, haven't yet had that conversation properly yet at this conference, but I sense it's only a matter of time before someone <laughs> says, but that's not a simulation, uh, probably at our workshop, because probably. some of those things are not, <laughs> not simulations. But again, you know, how do you... I think for me, it's always striking is that actually there's some kind of underlying design principles about how you create learning environments, mm. which are good across the board. You know, they're, they're pretty universal. Uh, but there are things which are really specific to simulations or to games or to so you know how do you do something that is not depriving people of a feeling that they can take things their own way and you know make things their own right. which I think you know that kind of it's like a maker culture you know where you say I found this thing I've made this thing it works for me in my way but you know you do what you like with it so I think maybe instead of thinking of it as a canon we think of it as a starter kit Mm. And uh, I'm specifically thinking here of Dungeons & Dragons, which is they've come out with these starter kits. uh, With with a starter adventure, it comes with a set of dice, it comes with pre-made characters. And so if you've never played Dungeons & Dragons before, uh, (laughs) so you haven't, you can, um, you have this book that the person who's running the game, the Dungeon Master Game Master, takes, and it gives them everything they need to run a really cool adventure. And you have the dice and you have the characters. So you can have a whole new set of players and you can sit around a table and you can play it. And it's a really great introduction to the game. And then when you're done with that, you can go many routes. There are other modules that you can get that are very similar. You can run those games. You can um, get the source books for different worlds that have been created and create your own adventure within those worlds. Or you can create your world. You can adapt to Lord of the Rings or uh, Harry Potter or whatever fantasy world you love 
into a Dungeon Dragons sort of setting. You can take this kind of structure and impose it on all these different environments. Or there's all kinds of other structures out there instead of the D20, in the D20 system and outside of it. So it's what I like about that, that sort of idea of the starter kit is if you've never done this before, it really gives you the tools that you need. But once you're familiar with it, you can go off in all these directions adapt what exists, create your own. And, and maybe that's more of what we need is the starter kit instead of a cannon. Mm. Right, so it's a good idea. Of course, the question is, who's going to create who's it? Gonna create it <laughs> Someone give it... me a grant and I'll do it. Okay, there you are. If anyone's listening, he's got some money lying around. Amanda is the person. Uh, she'll be happy uh, to do that. Yeah. Um, just one of the things you, you mentioned about Harry Potter and... Uh, just fantasy worlds, you know, kind of uh, pop fantasy worlds mm-hmm. that we know. I, our keynote was uh, it was a re- very impassioned keynote yes. uh, from uh, Alison McCartney yesterday, talking about how we need to be making students more active participants in democracies. You know, that mm-hmm. they need to be engaged. We need to give them skills as well as just knowledge. Uh, you know, and active learning simulations key part of that. Uh, but she illustrates that with a lot of uh, slides from Harry Potter and from Game of Thrones. Uh, do you think we, we sometimes suffer from sort of being associated with that kind of geeky niche? Uh, you know, is it, you know, are these the, the people who like that kind of thing? You know, they're the kind of people who like that, you know, doing that kind of active learning because, you know, it's kind of they're frustrated that they're not allowed to do a module on Dungeons and Dragons, uh, so they, they dress it up as a simulation or as a, an exercise. I mean, it's not surprising that people who are gamers are going to be drawn also to kind of that fantasy pop culture sort of scenario. I'm certainly a fan of many of those things. Um, and so I'm maybe not the best person to judge on whether or not there's judgment coming from other corners. Um, I'm lucky enough that I've, you know, been at a university that that's always given me freedom to kind of teach how I want to teach. So I've never sort of faced that that particular kind of backlash. Um, I do think that we're in that niche corner, and maybe that's why you see a lot of push from people that work on simulations to do more of those real-world simulations because then you're taken more seriously. If you can show how immersed you're getting students in this uh, historical or current issue, right? Then it, it lends that legitimacy in a way that using a fantasy world doesn't. So you know, maybe that's a tactic in order to gain wider acceptance is to focus on more real world simulations. Yeah, I think, you know, I think maybe if there is a prejudice, it's, you know, that simulations are always sort of seen as a bit of fun. Uh, you yeah. Know, that, oh, you know, uh, again, end of term. Learning shouldn't be fun. It shouldn't be fun. You know? oh God, why, why should <laughs> students be, you know, I suffered as a student, you two must suffer. Right. Uh, and we must all suffer from you know kind of the original sin of, of of being a student. But yeah, I think there is always I always feel like there is a suspicion you know that if we start kind of being all jaunty and hey this is you know me creative right. and, you know that somehow goes against that. Well, it's almost a kind of Victorian view of the university, you know, a very austere nineteenth century. These are serious places right. doing serious things and. You know, laughing should be forbidden, uh, let alone you know, anything that... Like. And yet, what I will say is that the w- work of mine that has had sort of the biggest reach is the work on making research methods a more approachable class. Hmm. You know, I get emails from uh, faculty in different parts of the world who teach the research methods course. Students don't like it, they find it boring, it's difficult for the instructor, um, looking for advice on how to try to make it better. 
and doing some, I mean, I in my research methods class, I do have them play games, I have them do exercises. Uh, I have, I mean, I start that class with a game, always. And then I have them do a project that doesn't focus on politics at all. It focuses on finding the best breakfast in town. Um, and somebody uh, at the conference was telling me that they did best lunch on campus as their project. Uh, and it's very sort of adaptable, but it's not a game. It's not a simulation. But it's an activity. But it's an activity and it's interesting to them and it makes it relevant to their real lives. And there is nothing wrong with making the material interesting to them in a way that you don't expect them to find what you find interesting interesting right we are all phds in politics or something related to that obviously we have a love of that material and some of our students we can foster that love but not all of them but sometimes in a skill in a course like methods which is skills-based teaching them how to use those skills and apply them to their real world creates that intrinsic interest um, in learning the material but then i think maybe that's it you know i think all active learning is is, is applied learning Mm. In effect, you yeah. know, here's a here's a thing. You've got to use your knowledge in an applied way, and maybe that's the problem. Is that you know, I think there's a maybe a feeling that we've got to teach the pure, abstract theory, and you know, this in its purest state. This is how you, how you do X, and this is what Y is about. Before we get grubby our hands with, but of course, it's more complicated that in real life. Right. I think you know, I don't know whether it's a anxiety that if we start with the grubby complexity of life students won't be able to appreciate the underlying pure model you know this kind of Aristotelian kind <laughs> of uh, uh, perfect uh, image that, that should be right. uh, but which never actually is fully realised I think you know, one thing that brought up is sort of the connection to civic engagement that we've seen. We heard a lot, quite a bit at this conference about people wanting to connect the work that we do in politics to the community and to building uh, active citizens. And to do that, you need to give them skills and you need to connect the material that they're learning to how that works in the real world. And I do think that simulations um, and, and games can can create that or, or part of the toolbox that creates that in a way that more passive forms of learning really don't necessarily aim that. But it has to be a deliberate intent by the professor uh, to create that in students, to build courses, to build modules that, that do that. Uh, and, and we're not great at that. And I don't know if that's because we are theorists, we focus on that, we don't know how to build that in, or maybe it's another one of these time issues where it takes a lot of time and effort. Uh, I mean, Alison McCartney, in, in a paper that she was giving, was talking about this uh, really interesting program that, that she runs where uh, students actually go to high schools and teach high school students about topics that they're learning in their classes. And when she was describing this, I was thinking about the logistics of that and hoping that she has staff to help with that because you know, putting that kind of um, uh, energy and time into a program like that, I mean, you really have to have that time and energy available, uh, which means it's not being taken up by other things. Uh, and I think that that would be intimidating to a lot of faculty, uh, tenure track or, or not, uh, to, to build something like that. So, where are we? You know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's easy, it's easy to, to spot the problems. Yeah. The question is, you know, have you had any thoughts about how we, we solve them? That, you know, do we just have to keep on trying for the things we do? Do we need to step change somewhere? 
you know, do we need a, a, a knight on a white horse to, to come in and uh, save us all? Or uh, I'm going to guess no, because I, I don't like those kind of uh, models anyway. But, you know, what, what is it that we can do? What is it that our, our listeners uh, and readers could do? Well, I was talking with Tanya Schwartz uh, from APSA, and she was telling me about these initiatives that they're doing to bring faculty together who teach in a particular area of political theory, research methods, comparative politics, um, and try to come up with teaching resources uh, that, that could be used more broadly to solve teaching problems in that area and then get shared on the APSA website. I think initiatives like that where you have faculty sort of coming together with the intent of creating useful exercises to build on the expertise in the room and come up with something that could maybe be part of the starter kit. I think that that's one way to start. I think another way to start is to really have, you know, reflect on what our larger goals are for our students beyond any particular lesson or module even. You know, what do we want students to, who study politics, who study international relations or any of these fields, to be able to do? How do we face the pressures that we're getting on employability? Right? You know, I, the number of parents who say, well, my student really loves political science, but what can they do with that degree? Yeah. And we tell them, oh, well, our students that don't go on to graduate school go on and work in government, but do we actually train them to do that other than giving them content knowledge and sort of soft skills and, and uh, you know, critical thinking and those sorts of things? And I'm not trying to devalue those. Content knowledge, soft skills, those are important. Mm -hmm. But maybe we need to be thinking more about the practice of our field and the skills students need to be working in that field uh, and building that into the curriculum in a way that's much more comprehensive than an individual instructor. The other thing I would say on this is when it comes to simulation games, maybe we need to fight back a little bit more. Maybe instead of being like, oh, you know, you're right, this we shouldn't, maybe we should focus on lecture and discussion. We need to fight back in the sense that the military has been using simulations forever. Uh, they use simulations in healthcare uh, for uh, doctors and nurses. I mean, this is not in emergency situations. Anytime you're thinking about a drill scenario, uh, that's a simulation. And maybe it's about a rebranding that this isn't about fun and games. This is about trying to recreate the kinds of situations that they might face if they go into this field. Uh, and if we, maybe if we can do that, we can be taken more seriously by those who think it's just fun and games. Well, sounds very sensible. I think uh, I don't really have anything more that I could say. I think the last thing I'd, I'd say was we had one paper presented by lecturer and three of his students. Yes, uh, that was, was great. Really great. Uh, and they were very well behaved. There were some questions I saw in one of the later panels. So, yeah. you know, if you're thinking about making an impact, actually bringing students in talking about their experience, uh, I'm all for it. And everyone was really eager to hear from the undergraduate students about how uh, the particular course that was being discussed had impacted them. I think that was that was great. Uh, I'd love to see more students at these sorts of conferences. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now thinking about the students we teach, which ones would we want to be showing off in public? Uh, <laughs> it's a bit like colleagues, actually. Um, <laughs> on that happy thought, uh, the rain hasn't closed in yet. Uh, I've been Simon Ashwood. Amanda Rosen. And uh, we will do this the next time we see each other. God knows when that's going to be or where, but uh, we can keep hoping. Yes. Thanks for listening. Thanks.